We've been in a series called The Why Behind the What, and it's a, that's a series kind of framed up around sort of our cultural, church cultural experiences that many, many people, uh, you know, associate church and religion and kind of with the what of the things we do, uh, but many people don't actually know why we do it, or they assume they know why we do it, because grandma said that's what they did, and you know, I asked a question in the small group questions this week. I said, what was one of the rules you had to follow as a kid that you didn't really know why? And uh, I gave him as an example myself uh, that there was no running in God's house. You anybody else grow up with this at all? I mean, I know I'm, not everybody grew up in church like me, but, you know, I grew up with that. That was a rule. I mean, there's no running, no screaming, no nothing in God's house. And I was like, God's house is boring, right? Like, I mean, as a kid... What kind of message are you sending to me, right? But there were rules like that. There were, the, there were the what's, if you will, that people just didn't have the why behind. So the problem we've, we, we kind of have been talking about over the last few weeks is that most or many have an idea of the what, but you're uninformed, indifferent, or even confused about the why. And Life, Lifeway Research did, again, uh, some kind of 2020-ish uh, statistics, if you will, around biblical worldview. I've shared some of those things with you, but this is one of the quotes we got, that overall U.S. adults appear to have a superficial attachment to well-known Christian beliefs. Well-known, solid-based, theological, even understandings of things, they just have a superficial, surface, if you will, knowledge or even attachment uh, to these things. So we've been talking about the why. That's, that's been the whole point of this series. And we told you guys that the why has to, for us, um, the why has to be defined by God's word. We have to define our why by God's word. You cannot have a biblical perspective if you do not read the Bible. I just want you to hear this from your pastor, okay? It is simply not enough for you to hear me tell you what I think the Bible says, okay? Because I'm wrong a lot. Ask my wife, you know? I mean, not about the Bible. I'm just saying I'm wrong a lot, you know? We, you were never supposed to do that. You were never, that was never supposed to be the plan. You have the ability to read the Word of God and have it speak to you and open up in your heart and life, and that's for you to do. And that's our challenge constantly, uh, even as a church. Over the last three weeks, so you can go back and look, uh, we've been discussing the what around some of our uh, things we talk about and believe. So the first week, Pastor Chris talked about salvation and eternal security, Right, the first few, first week was just this big foundational piece of where does it, how does salvation work? What does eternal security even mean? And he did an amazing job with that. The second week uh, was sanctification, very big theological term. I was doing it in light of justification and glorification. And again, I can't recap it for you. So please go back and watch it. If there's anything you've ever kind of struggled with or wondered with, wondered about, last week Randy did an amazing job uh, doing the sacraments, and he talked specifically about baptism and communion. And he didn't, I don't know if he knew this at the time, but right now we are planning our next baptism at our pool party, okay? So this year it's going to be a little bit different. We're having a pool party in August, and sometimes, you know, the pool party comes, and you're like, well, I don't have kids, and I don't want to wear a bathing suit in front of people, and blah, 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 and we understand, okay? But we're going to have baptism at the pool because we have some adults and kids who have kind of been nervous about getting up in front of the, in the little jacuzzi we have and those kind of things. And we're going to let their families uh, help baptize them in the pool at the neighborhood pool. It's going to be an amazing time. Okay, So if that's something you are interested in in terms of baptism, please let me know. Uh, let any of our staff know. Go online and fill it out. You can... Uh, uh, sign up for baptism. And again, that'll be August, I think, 14th. I, I'll have to get a slide for you, but it's August 14th, I believe. 
But we talked a little bit about those sacraments last week, and I actually did communion, old school baptist communion. I don't know if you were here last week, but it was so cool. And the very people was like, yeah, it was cool. Don't do it again. You know, it took an hour. You know, that's, that's part of it. But this week, we're going to talk about another sacrament, but we wanted to kind of single it out in terms of generosity. Giving is the sacrament in terms of what we do, but generosity is the heart behind some of the things that we as followers of Christ believe we've been called to, we've been called to live out of. And a lot of times people just, they're indifferent, they're confused. There's been a lot of different messages in terms of what this has to do with Christianity. And so for some of you, uh, this, is just, this sermon is just going to be a reminder of what you already do. Okay, hopefully we'll tell some good stories and you'll be able to continue to celebrate what God's doing. For some of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard somebody explain the why behind the church in terms of giving and generosity and the things that we do called to. Um, and I hope that's true. I never take for granted that you guys were raised in church like me. I never take for granted that uh, you guys have all those answers. So we're going to talk about that. But for most of us, I believe it's just going to be another nudge, right? Another nudge in the direction of living in the fullness of what it looks like to, to, to be in line with, the, with God, to be in step with the Holy Spirit in our lives. Why money? Well, here's a great quote that I love using every time we talk about it, just because I just love the way it's worded. Here's the quote. Everyone is at risk of making money their ultimate pursuit or their ultimate concern, right? Every one of us is at risk of choosing one of those two things, making it the thing we live for and drives us or the thing that locks us up in fear and anxiety, but it, no, it doesn't really matter which one it is because it in turn makes it our ultimate, which means it makes it the most important thing. And I, I want to just remind you guys that when it comes to money in the church, that this was not man's idea. When I say man's idea, I don't mean mankind. Like, this wasn't some clever early, you know, origin pyramid scheme that people came up with, you know, in the, in the original church to try to figure out how to get levels and get people to give and to make money off of people's giving. And I know that some, I know, I know it's been abused, right? I know people have leveraged those kinds of things to buy their personal jets and all those kinds of things. We know the history uh, but it really wasn't man's idea. It was God's idea, right? God is the one who actually set this system up, who sort of tied the idea of money and generosity and giving with the worship of God. And it was set up to be a system of priority and response. Priority meaning it took first place in people's lives. And it, was, it had a huge priority in terms of how we saw God and responded to God, and that priority and response in terms of gratitude, in terms of giving what we have back to him that he's already blessed us with. And the words that, that are associated with this, tithes and offerings. Now, tithes, that's a weird word. Nobody uses it outside the church, really, but it's just a tenth. It's, it's the Hebrew, you know, kind of word they use for the tenth, the, the first fruits, if you will. That was oftentimes the firstborn uh, livestock. That was the firstborn or the first uh, part of your harvest. That first fruit made it a priority, right? It kind of kept people from, from kind of holding tightly what they were, the blessing of God. They wanted to hold tightly to God, not the blessing of God. And the, the offerings were just that sort of sacrificial gift. That idea that tithing was 10%, but the, you know, the tenth of what you had, but then, but then above and beyond that, there was an idea of generosity, this idea of the sacrificial nature of giving, because it was a part of God, again, his system that he created around giving 
around this. I heard another pastor quote this. This was good. Um, Tithing is the debt that we owe and giving is the seed we sow. Isn't that a good phrase to try to remember? Like, tithing is the debt we owe, and, you know, take that for what it is in terms of debt, meaning that we have this biblical sense of giving back to God what is his already, but giving is this above and beyond. It's the seed we sow to see the things that God wants to to do, obedience and gratitude. This is kind of how we've uh, talked about it. So I'm going to give you just three things today, because three whys, and I don't want to belabor this for you, but again, I want to connect the dots for those that do not understand it. I want to connect the dots there on the why behind how churches view and should view and how we as a church do view giving and generosity and that plan that we have uh, to give. There's whys behind it that really do matter. I'm going to start with the most important one. It's because money is the test of our hearts. Money is the test of our hearts. Here's what Jesus had to say. This is in Matthew 6. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 19, he says, I don't want you to store up treasures here on earth. Jesus like, just stop worrying about all the things you can collect and gather and store here. Very similar to what Tracy read this morning in our call to worship, where moths eat uh, eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. He says, I want you to store up treasures in heaven where moths can't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. There's 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 an eternal view, a kingdom view of what you can store up, of what you can invest in. And it says that wherever your treasure is, the desires of your heart will also be. This was Jesus' way of basically tying it together and saying, look, there's there's a unique relationship between the way money, treasure, wealth, emotionally ties us up. That's a hard issue. And he says, wherever your heart is, That's usually what you find the most value in. It's where your treasure lies. And you can say the same thing, that wherever you spend your money, spend your time, spend your investments, that's what you care about the most. It's where your heart is, right? It's this idea that that all of these things, when we put our, uh, when we tie our happiness and our contentment and our satisfaction and our value and our success And our security, now and future security, when we tie that to money, the chains that it places on our hearts get locked by fear. That makes fear the most powerful tool and weapon of man. Why? Because fear, fear will always drive us towards what matters. What's the word? Now. And it drives us away from what matters what? The most. Fear will always kind of focus us in and tie us to what matters right now, what's happening in this moment, in this second, in this circumstance, and even again, future security like my, my just few minutes from now, or hours from now, or days from now, is still tied to that, and anything that you do, you can, you can use fear as a manipulative tool to keep our hearts kind of locked down. When it comes to money, when it comes to our treasure. And Jesus knew this. He said, that's why I don't want you to worry about storing it up here. Matter of fact, he said it a different way. This is in Luke, I believe. He says, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in the little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. I mean, if you can't handle the little bit that God's given you in terms of blessing, it's going to be hard to ask God to continue to bless you. 
He says, if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, meaning just sort of the stuff that is here today and gone tomorrow, you can't even be trusted with that. Who's going to trust you with the true riches of heaven? Why would he trust you with eternal matters? Why would he trust you with, 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 with bigger things? And then he says that if you're not faithful with other people's things, why would you be trusted with things of your own? That gets into the whole stewardship versus ownership thing. And right after, he says, look, you cannot serve two masters, right? You're going to hate one and love the other. You're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't, you can't straddle the fence on this one. Not when it comes to your heart. Not when it comes to this. Why? Because he says, you're going to serve God, or sorry, you can't serve God and be enslaved to money, to treasure, and to everything we tie that to, enslaved to security, enslaved to success, enslaved to your value that you think money and wealth gives you. You can't do it. You can't, you can't straddle the fence. Like it's, it's going to be one or the other. You can't serve God and be enslaved to this, which is why, again, fear is such a powerful, powerful tool. But it's also, I want you to hear this, it's also why giving has such, been such an instrumental part of worship of God. Because in the terms of like really kind of giving back to God the worth that he is due, that priority and response of God, you're great, you're the best, you're amazing, you're our provider, you're, you're our everything. You can't say those things and really live out those things when you are actually enslaved, tied to, locked down with an emotional tie to treasure, to money and what money promises or what right now money provides. And so worship became a part of gatherings. Worship became a part of, or sorry, giving became a worship. Giving became a part of your, sort of your gatherings and coming together. That's, I just want you to know, that's where the history of all this comes from, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You see how it was used. You see it in early church history, even in terms of how maybe some of you guys were raised. Matter of fact, Paul writes it this way. He says that on the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money you've earned. This was just some instructions he was giving the church when they were thinking through, like, how do we do this? Like, we're, 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 we see needs coming up, you know, that we can meet, and, and we need to be able to be prepared for that. He says, look, don't wait until you get there, right, to try to collect it all at once. He was talking about specifically giving to a church. He said, don't wait. I want you to, I want you to take, take the first part of the week, and I want you to give. I want you to put things uh, aside. Lynn, I'm going to shove this right down here by you, if that's okay. And so I just want you to see, like, again, this goes back to kind of all the things we were talking about earlier in terms of how we've seen this done. All right, let me go ahead and pass a few of these things out. Let me see here. These are just a few things we've done in the past, right? Let me see. Let me get on this side, Debbie. Isn't this cool? Doesn't this look like a magic trick for some reason? <laughs> these are these little offering sacks. And the goal was that, you know, we didn't want germs directly, so we passed the little thingy here. And then we would put our offering into the sack, and then you would take the handle and pass it to someone else. So they didn't have to touch your hand. You had to get too close, you know? Go ahead and pass this around, Dan, as well. This is an offering plate. If you didn't know, this is not a Frisbee. All right? This would, we have about six of these. And very similar to last week when we passed the communion around, this is how people took offering, right? This is how it was done. Like, you came in just like with the sack. Go ahead and pass it around, guys. Keep it going. I want to, oh, there you go, Dan. All right? See? I just want you to imagine what, what Dan just did there was, was oftentimes what happened. You had this real expectation that when you came into worship and the offering plate was passed, that you didn't want to be the one 
to pass it on, right? That you'd get it, and if you didn't put anything in it, and you pass to the next person. I mean, listen, we're all sinful, judgmental people in here, right? That next person gets it and is like, uh, really? Like, I saw what you drove in here with. Hello? And then they, would, they themselves would do something and pass it along, or they would be just as hypocritical. Oh, thank God they didn't put anything in because I'm not putting anything in either. And they keep going, right? There was an expectation because, again, it was part of worship. It was, it was this idea that you couldn't come to worship without bringing something. Matter of fact, I love this. This is like an old chest. I got this. Lori gave this to me to borrow. Uh, is it for sale, Lori? It's for sale. If you want to talk to Lori about it, this is in her antique shop, but you know, you can buy it from her. No, this is like, uh, there's a beautiful story in second Chronicles 24 about the chest of Joash. And it's just a specific quick little story about, you know, the King Joash. He was young. He talked to his high priest and he says, look, the house of God is in ruins, man. Like people aren't giving to repair the house. It was sacked. It was all these sudden things. And so he said, I want you to go out and collect, you know, the tithe. I want you to go collect the offerings from the people. Send out all the priests and Levites. Well, they didn't do it. They were kind of, I don't know, they were just kind of like, ah, we'll get to that. You know, they weren't super, you know, they didn't have the urgency that the king wanted to have. So the king called him back and said, why didn't you do it? So he had a chest built, a huge chest, and he placed it at the gate of the city. And when people saw it, they actually rejoiced. They actually were thankful because they wanted to participate in the, in the reconstruction of the temple. They wanted to help and be a part of something because they knew what God's law was. So they were bringing things to the chest. And daily, Joash and the, and, the, and the high priest would go out and they would take the chest and empty it and put it back out and take the chest and empty it and put it back out. And you'd see this even in the time of Jesus where at the temple... They would have usually a collection area. Maybe it was a chest. Maybe it was a big bowl. Who knows? And people would come into the temple as part of their worship, and they would come in and they would bring their offering. They would bring their tithe. You know, listen, it just wasn't... God set up a system. It really wasn't meant to be that you could come in and raise your hands and worship God. You are amazing. You are all things. And bring him nothing, empty-handed. It was never set up that way. This is where Jesus said, you know, their lips say this, say this but their hearts are far from me. Because their hearts are enslaved to, 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 to money and to fear and to what those things provide. Now, we as a church, just to let you know, these are our offering boxes, in case you didn't know. Okay? We kind of hide them in the back. Tracy, my wife, says these look like the amazing box clue uh, things, you know what I'm talking about? Like They, they, they kind of look like that, tall and all that. But they're at the back of the room and at the door, and you know we want people to, to engage this way. That's great. We have little envelopes here in case you want to give a check and have it recorded and your date and your, your name and kind of keep those for tax purposes in terms of your gift, your, your gift to a nonprofit. That, you can do that too. Or you can just give and just slide it in. They're going to count this later. Oh, well. All right. There you go. You can just slide it in. And when I was a kid, we'd have a, we'd have a box given to us every December. And it would have our family name on it and a date for every single Sunday envelope in the box. Remember that, Tracy? You know? I remember when we got married and they had one for us. And we were like, whoa, hold on. We're still children, you know? <laughs> Had a box for us. It was like, there was an expectation. Why? Because again, this was God's system of priority and response, of tithes and offerings, of, of the way in which we don't just say that God is everything. 
we, we have an action, we have a sacrificial gift that goes along with it. We tell people sometimes in the church, listen, all you have to do is just three things, okay? In terms of you've never done this before, just, just make it a priority in your life. We have a couple of business owners that um, have shared with us before that, you know, they just have it set up where as soon as an invoice is paid, their money just splits up into directions. You know, this much goes into to, to, to an account to tithe. This much goes into savings. This much goes in investments, and this much goes into my account. And it's just automatic. It's a priority in their life. I have one of our early partners or young, uh, new partners here. He told me the other day, like, he, he's having to give every day. Okay, just think about the discipline of this. He's giving every day, at the end of the day, the business that he did because he himself is trying to train himself in the understanding of who actually is providing his customers, who is actually the one who's provided this day for me. And he's actually giving it right then, online, because about 75% of the people who give at our church give online. He does it right then, multiple times throughout the week as a way of saying, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. This is back to you right away. And it's a percentage, and I tell people this all the time. You choose your percentage. A tenth is 10%. I mean, some people give more. Some people have started with less. That's kind of where you want to get to. Um, we tell people all the time, start with 10, right? Start with two, start with three, start with five, do whatever. Get to 10. Make it progressive. That's what it means. Make it progressive. Another one of our families, uh, Journey families, they, they took FPU several years ago. Um, they started, in one of our 90-day challenges, they started giving, and they, they, they just saw God meet them. Now, I can't even remember the percentage. They, I want to say it was like 3 or 4%. God met them right in that step as they started to give. And then they started to make it progressive. So every six months and every year, they kept up to, upping their percentage and upping their percentage. And I'll never forget a couple of years later, they were like, dude, we're almost at 10%. We can't believe it. It took a little while, right? But God met them every single time they took a step with job opportunities and promotions and all sorts of things that they just said was clearly from God. And then just this year, when we did the challenge again in the spring, they were there. They were at 10%. Isn't that awesome? Like they, they made it. And it's progressive. So they're not stopping there. They're going to continue to progress. They're going to continue to pray about how can they give more? How can those offerings, those, those above and beyond things, when people show up and they, they have needs for mission trips and needs, we're a part of that. This is why, again, this is why money is a test of our hearts. Jesus talked about this more than he even talked about heaven or hell from the standpoint of stating heaven and hell. He talked about money and talked about, used money as an example of how just how it just grabs a hold of us and enslaves us and ties us down, takes our eyes off what matters most and focuses on what matters right now. This is the second um, why, is that giving really is the door to blessing. It really is the door to living, I would say it this way, to living in the blessing of God. I don't want you to just kind of think this whole tit for tat thing, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's just living out and living in the blessing of God in your life. So here's a great uh, set of verses that I love going back to when I talk about this because in the Old Testament, it was sort of like either blessing or curse. You were either living in the blessing or you were living in the curse, and there was kind of no in-between. That's kind of what they kind of felt in terms of following God because they were either following him or they weren't following him. They felt cursed when they weren't following him. 
So here's, here's the prophet Haggai, and this is what he, uh, God said through him to his people. He said, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. He says, you know, the people, talking about the, the, the church, the people, the Israelites, uh, they keep saying, you know, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They had gone to reestablish the temple and the walls and all that kind of thing, and they were just like, you know what? Not this year. You know, there's so many other things going on. We'll do it next year, Right? And he says, the Lord sent his message through the prophet Haggai. He said, look, here's my message. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? And this is what they were particularly guilty of. They were worried about the now. They were worried about themselves. They were worried about their, their houses. And he says, I want you to look at what's happening to you. This is God saying, are you even aware of this in, ter- in light of my relationship with you? He goes, you have planted much, but you have harvested little. You are eating, but you are not satisfied. You are drinking, but you're still thirsty. He's like, are you even paying attention to this? You've put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though they're going, as if they were uh, being put into pockets filled with holes. How many, can I get an amen on that at all? Anybody else feel like that sometimes? Like you just put them in your pockets, but they're just gone. You hoped for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, God says, I blew it away. Right? I blew it away. Why? Here it goes. Because my house lies in ruins, the Lord said, while you're busy building your own fine houses. This is just God kind of helping them understand you've got the wrong priorities in your life. It's because of you that the heavens withhold their due and the earth produce no crops. It's because of your decisions, because of how you're living. I've called for a drought on your fields and your hills brought to wither, and the grain and the grapes, keep going, and the olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. You're like, ooh, that seems weird. Why would God do that? Well, I love the message paraphrase. This is Eugene Peterson. Message paraphrase basically says, God's response is, guess what? I've, statched, I've, I've matched your stinginess. God says, you want to live like that? Fine. I'll match you. Now, what does that mean? Again, I want you to, to hear this. Is there plenty of examples where God cursed people and, you know, placed a curse? Yes. But more often than not, in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, when we saw this dynamic of the blessing of God versus the curse that people felt like they were living in, almost always the curse that they were living in was just the consequences of choosing to live life their way. They were the natural consequences of choosing to live life their way, without God, without God as a priority, without doing what he's called them to do. And I look at people today and I think, how many people just, I mean, especially in the church, do not see what's happening in their life. They do not put it together that they're they're drinking, but they're not satisfied. They're eating, but they're not full because they're living in a cursed life state. They're living in the natural consequences of when you do not do what you are supposed to do in terms of following God, and he's made it as crystal clear as possible. You get what you get. He matches your stinginess. Here's how Paul said it to Timothy. He's saying, look, after all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we're going to take nothing with us when we leave. Make that clear. There's no U-Hauls going to the cemeteries. You know, there are no, doesn't matter what you get buried with. Trust me, I've, I've had to exhume bodies from cemeteries. It's all still there, okay? 
No matter what you thought was going with that person, didn't go anywhere. Just laid in the dirt and rusted and, and gone. He says, so if we have enough food and clothing, then let us be content. He's like, be content with what's happening right now. Be satisfied. He goes on to say this, people who long to be rich fall into the temptation and they're trapped, right? Again, in chains by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Like this is the natural consequences. Keep going. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Don't hear that money was evil. It was the love of money. It was the pursuit of money. It was the ultimate of money. That was the root of this kind of stuff. And he says, and some people craving money, they wandered from true faith. And look at this. And they pierced themselves with many sorrows. They pierced themselves. I mean, we have the word of God. We have an understanding that we're doing this to ourselves. Choosing to do it our way, in our own time, in our, with our you know, sort of our framework of how we think it's supposed to go, God says, good luck, you get what you get. And yet we're constantly praying for him to bless us. We're constantly praying for him to make it work. You're constantly praying him to let it work out. You're constantly praying for him to, to bless your decision. But you already not doing one of the simplest things he's called you to do, which is live in stewardship. Understand who's given you everything you have, and I'm telling you guys, I've said this a thousand times. I apologize when it's on repeat. Stewardship is freedom. Say it out while I look with me. Ready? Stewardship is freedom. One more time. Stewardship is freedom. You have never been so free than when nothing is yours. Because you don't own the weight of it. You don't own the responsibility of it. God gave things. He takes them away. It goes up and it goes down. I mean, Paul's given several examples of this. He's like, my belly's been full. My belly's been growling at me. I'm content with Christ. Why? Because there was a stewardship of what God had given him. He was living in the blessing of God. And even though you know this, listen, I, you could make the statement, you've never met a miserable, generous person, Right? You have never met somebody who is legitimately one of the most generous people you've ever met. They are not miserable people. These are happy people. These are satisfied people. These are content people. Not because they had the money to be generous with, but because they were generous. And God provided what they need to continue to be generous. You know this. I was just, again, I was talking to a friend the other day. A new partner, a new partner here at Journey, and uh, he left me a, a quick voicemail, and he said, "You know what?" He said, "He was telling me, okay, quick story. He did the 90-day giving challenge, right? The 90-day giving challenge was back in the spring. He did the 90-day giving challenge, and I love this because he's really honest about it. He did it to prove that we were wrong. Okay, it was great. He did it to prove that we were wrong because we made a bunch of statements like it's going to be better. God will meet you in this step, and, the, and he was just like, whatever. Okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. So he started to give, and he was faithful." And God showed up, and he showed up. But it's been a few months since then, and one of the coolest things I heard, uh, he left a voicemail for me. He just said, you know, one, like talking about the blessing of God, has he blessed me financially? Has he shown up in these steps? Absolutely. He said, but to be honest, like satisfaction in my life has come back. Joy in my job has come back. And you're, you know, listen, I'm not talking about like sitting behind a desk job. We're talking about grueling labor job. We're talking about in a hundred plus degree heat sometimes job. And here he is going, but, but I'm getting joy again. 
in my job. And as I listened to that, I was just like, gosh, what is the greater blessing, right, of that stewardship? What is the greater blessing of stewardship? Is it because God kind of sees your dollar and raises you to, you know, like most people teach and think? No. It's because we live in the joy and satisfaction of the great provider for our lives. And this third point fuels the work of the kingdom. It fuels what God is doing in and through us, the church, in and through this world. That's how tithing was meant to be. It was meant to be the fuel for mission and ministry. Here's how Paul said it to the church in Corinth. He said, I want you to remember this. A farmer plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. Okay, He's just talking about the, the, the universal rules of sowing and reaping. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. And he's talking about this in light of giving, in terms of generosity. He says, you must decide in your heart. Why? Because he knows it's a hard issue. He's just repeating what Jesus said. How much to give? Do not give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Okay, It's one of the reasons, not, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons we don't pass the plate Okay? It's one of the reasons we don't have a giving moment in the service right before we pass the plate where I can look you in the eyes and get all the feels going and get you all guilty feeling. Right? We have boxes so that you can intentionally give. We have reminders so that you can give online and know that this is an act of worship. You don't give reluctantly. You don't give to manipulation. God loves a person who gives cheerfully. They have a plan that's a priority. They've chosen a percentage. They, 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 they work at it. They grow in it. God will generously provide all you need. And you will always have enough left over and need plenty of share, sorry, always uh, everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Like, this is God's plan. He's going to provide your needs and you're going to have enough to, to share. So God's the one who provides seed for the farmer and the bread to eat in the same way he's going to provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Because that's his goal. Isn't how much money floats around. God can do whatever he wants with money. But his goal is you. He wants to produce that heart of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And then when we take your gifts to those in need, they'll thank God. So I love this. He goes on to say, look, two things are going to happen. This is the way God designed it. That's going to result from the ministry of giving. Needs of the believers are in Jerusalem are going to be met, because that's the specific gift they were doing right then. He says, they're going to be met, but they're also going to express their thanks to God. Right? Worship's going to happen. Not just that needs are going to be met, but worship's going to happen. And so sometimes when I read this verse, well, God will provide their needs. Here's what I get every once in a while. And listen, if you've ever asked me this question, don't, don't hear me judgmentally respond. Some people that ask me this question, I usually have a very short diplomatic answer for you because you usually ask me in the lobby on the way out the door. I just want you to know, okay? And it's not time to get into it. But usually people who struggle to give, who struggle with generosity, who struggle to understand the why behind the what, when I read a verse like that, well, he'll, produce all your, he'll provide all your needs, then people that don't necessarily have a plan for generosity will come to me and say, well, what about all the starving people in Africa? What about all the Christians in Haiti, Don? Right? What about all the Christians in Haiti that suffer and struggle? What about them? Why doesn't God provide their needs? As if God's the one failing. Why doesn't God, why doesn't God do that? 
And usually I get, I have a very diplomatic answer because I can't get into it all, but, but that's just not the way that works. Okay. In terms of how you understand globally what God is continuing to do to provide needs. Because he's always using the believers. He's always using the generosity of believers to do his kingdom work around the world. But when there's a struggle, the struggle is not because of God. The struggle is because of us. Why? Well, because on average, in most church congregations, between about 8% and 22% actually tithe. That's it. So about 8% from the low end to about 22% actually understand tithing, actually give a tenth in addition to offers, offerings and, 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 and uh, uh, above and beyond. And, and, and here's, uh, this was a, a, something pulled from the National, uh, uh, National Christian Foundation. This was back in 2019. It said, look, if just 100% of the people that attend church right now, attend church, if 100% of those people gave 10% and they did their little algorithms and figures, they said, look, it's about $160 billion more than what's currently coming in. Okay? Just, I just want you to think about it for a minute. Because we hear numbers like this all the time, right? The news. We're giving blah, 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 billion to somebody else. And we're giving blah, 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 million to somebody else. And this is how much the debt's and the, 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 the deficit's going to be. I know we hear big numbers, okay? I want to break it down for you just for a minute. But, but this is their research to just say, look, if everybody just sort of did what they were supposed to do, what God already told them to do, Here's what we have, more than what we already have. And what could you do with that? We'll keep going. I'll read this off. You can see it on the screen. Well, about $25 billion a year over five years could basically end global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases. About $25 billion a year over the five years could solve it, could eradicate it, could, could be done. About $12 billion a year for five years could eliminate illiteracy globally. About $15 billion a year over two years could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. Solve them. Clean water, sanitation. <laughs> this is really sad. It only takes about a billion a year to fu fully fund all global missions. Did you know that? To fully fund all global missions currently takes about a billion dollars a year. We could do it. And that leaves us with about 100 to 110 billion. That's nice, huh? We've solved all those problems. We still have 100 to 110 billion. For what? I don't know, future needs, future mission and ministry. Like, so here's the deal. And I just want you to hear this from my heart. People who already actively participate, they know the why behind the what. They already actively participate in tithes and offerings. They have a plan for their generosity. They never ask this question. They never ask the question, well, what about the people in Haiti? What about the people in Africa? Why? Because they already know that God is the provider of all things. And they already know that out of their obedience to God and through their tithes and offerings and through their generosity, that they are already a part of the mission and ministry of God. 
Okay? They do not. They don't question God as an excuse for their lack of obedience. They don't sit on the sidelines and throw pot shots at God because they're struggling in the world when God already has a plan. We're the ones who don't get it. Not you guys. You guys are amazing. I'm talking about everybody else. If you don't hear anything else, just hear this, because I want you to know why we say the words we say. Okay? So here at Journey, somebody says, why? When Matt talks about giving like this, or when Matt talk, does the, the summer giving challenge, you know, we didn't even care if it was a percentage. Choose your percentage, choose your amount. We just wanted 100% of people to participate this summer in giving financially out of their pockets to God. Why does he do that? Why does this church do that? What's the why behind the what? It's out of gratitude and obedience. And we use those words pretty often. I just want you to know why. Because we truly believe that everything that we give, you can't just do one without the other. If you do it out of obedience, fine. Eventually, it's going to be begrudging. Eventually, it's going to be one of those things that, you know, you're going to feel that pressure when the plate comes by and you could try to do it out of obedience. A lot of times, I'm not saying it doesn't stick, but it's short term. If you don't connect it with gratitude, with worship, then it won't, you won't feel it. You won't understand it. And we don't want you to just give when you're grateful. Everybody with me? Because if it's just gratitude, you can walk out the door not feeling very grateful today. It's too hot. <laughs> too hot. It's God's fault. Not as grateful as I should be. Is everybody with me? I know that's, I'm just joking, but it's, it's, it's why as a church we, we talk about both things and we say, listen, you're... The ministry of giving, the mission and ministry of our churches, gratitude and obedience. This is how we as followers, of, this is how we believe followers of Christ are called to live. With a heart of gratitude and a heart of obedience. Because we know that that just unlocks those chains in our hearts. We know that every time we give, it unlocks those chains in our hearts and we respond to God in a way that he's worthy. We respond to God in a way that helps, that helps us remember who our provider really is. We don't necessarily want anyone giving when they don't really understand the why. Again, going back to why we don't necessarily pass plates and try to manipulate you. We're going to give you the online options. We're going to put the boxes and the envelopes in the back of the room. We're going to put them by the door. And I'm telling you, this is, this is just... I've been here 15 years. I've been serving as a pastor. I'm 16 years. I've been serving as your pastor for about 11, almost 12 years. And I just want you to know, I've never, ever truly worried about money. Why? Because I know who our provider is. I know that God's going to do his work in and through his people. And it's more important to me that God is doing the work in you to provide a a, a harvest of generosity in you because I know what that's going to do for you. And yes, he's going to do the kingdom work. Of course he's, of course he is. That's what we do as a church. That's what, that's what we're a part of. That's why our budget is called a mission and ministry budget because that's what we're about. But it has to come from gratitude and obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that 
even when we read your word about blessing and curses and we can struggle a little bit with what's going on in the world and how exactly it is you meet needs, but God, you've made it as clear as day. We are the ones who muddy it up. You've made it as clear as day that you do this work in and through your people and in and through us. And God, my prayer is that every single person here and every single person watching online would be an active participant, unlocking the change from their heart, living in the freedom of stewardship and the fullness of the blessing that you've called us to and the satisfaction in our life that you have for us. Oh, man, and being a part of the kingdom work and the mission and ministry that you're in God. So I pray that for everyone here. And God, if they've never understood the why, that just today, that you'd just unlock some things for them, that you'd, you'd help them take the steps they need to take to be able to respond in priority to you, to set you above all things, above all else. You're there first. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.